3: The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
2: I speak tonight for the Dignity. dignity of man. And dignity
0: is something we all deserve. Everybody wants some, and not everybody feels it. Sometimes when people don't feel dignity... Uh, they do desperate things. We all know what that is. Well, now here's a provocative book title for you. You ready for this? The War on Normal People. The War on Normal People. Its subtitle is The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income Is Our Future. Now, when I interviewed Gore Vidal in the early 1980s, the author and sometime political candidate Gore Vidal told me something rather insightful about capitalism and socialism. I believe he was right when he observed that, quote, the U.S. government prefers that public money go not to the people but to big business. The result is a unique society in which we have free enterprise for the poor and socialism for the rich. He said that first, and I believe it's been proven true. And if that basic, longstanding structure was not enough to cause serious inequality and lack of hope for a great many Americans, as we delve ever deeper into this new century, new technologies are simultaneously making lives better and erasing millions of jobs. One recent estimate from the McKinsey Global Institute predicts that up to 45 million American workers will lose their jobs by 2030, not very far from now, jobs that won't be replaced. Rapidly advancing technologies like artificial intelligence, robotics and automation software are making millions of Americans' livelihoods irrelevant. The future looks dire, but is it unavoidable? Well, our guest today is the author of that book, *War: The War on Normal People. Entrepreneur Andrew Yang imagines a different future, one in which having a job is distinct from the capacity to prosper and seek fulfillment. He argues that America needs to take radical steps to prevent Great Depression-level unemployment and total societal meltdown. At this vision's core is universal basic income, the policy of providing all citizens with a guaranteed income, a proposal that at first may sound shocking, but is rapidly gaining popularity among forward-thinking politicians and economists. Yang argues that universal basic income is an essential step toward a new, more durable kind of economy, one he calls human capitalism. Andrew Yang, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Andrew Yang. Andrew is the founder of Venture for America, a major nonprofit that places top college graduates in startups for two years in emerging U.S. cities to generate job growth. Yang has been the CEO, co founder, or executive at a number of technology and education companies. Yang was named a presidential ambassador of global entrepreneurship and a champion of change by the White House and one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business. He was also named the National Advisory Council for Innovation and Entrepreneurship of the Department of Commerce. A major documentary with an Oscar-winning director, Generation Startup, featuring Yang and Venture for America, was released in the fall of 2016 and is available on Netflix and other streaming platforms. Mr. Yang is also running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Uh, Clearly, there's a lot to talk about. First off, that's quite a title, The War on Normal People. How did you come up with that?
3: my travels throughout the country with Venture for America, I saw firsthand the impact of automation of manufacturing jobs in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Baltimore, and other cities. And my friends in Silicon Valley are working very hard right now on automating truck driving, retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, and other major labor categories that will have similarly destructive effects around the country. And that's, that's what I mean by the war on normal people. It's the automation of the average worker's livelihood.
0: Yes, that's clearly happening. And what is your purpose in writing this book? Why is it needed, and, and who is the target audience, do you think? Are there maybe many target audiences?
3: Well, the, the goal is to let Americans know that this is real, it's happening. We're in the third or fourth inning of the greatest technological and economic transformation in our history, and we are decades behind the curve. We need to speed up as fast as we can and start accepting that many jobs are going to be disappearing for good. The numbers are telling a very clear story, and the disappearing jobs are already having an incredibly destructive effect on our society, where our life expectancy has declined for the last two years. Uh, Disability rates have gone up to 20% in some areas. Seven Americans die of opiate overdoses every hour. Our labor force participation rate is down to 62.9%. There are 95 million Americans who are out of the workforce right now. 62.9% is comparable to the levels in El Salvador and the Dominican Dominican Republic. Mm. None of this is speculative anymore. We are in the middle of it, and we need to act fast.
0: Yeah, we're hitting... Wow, that is some scary stuff. And people, I think, are starting to wake up to see it. And, you know, it's not something we really are enthusiastic to look at, but my goodness, we have to. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, is Andrew Yang, who has a brand-new book out called The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income Is Our Future. And, Andrew, you write that automation is accelerating to a point where it will soon threaten our social fabric and way of life. Describe what you call the great displacement brought by brought on by unprecedented advances in technology.
3: Yes, my friends in Silicon Valley are becoming increasingly confident about being able to replace the human worker in contexts like truck driving. Truck drivers, most common job in 29 states, there are three and a half million nationwide average age 49, 94% male. And so they're up to 98% confidence in the automation of truck driving. And the last 2% will take place through what they're calling teleoperators. So there'll be a warehouse full of people in Nevada ready to jump in and take control of a truck if the computer isn't sure what to do because of bad weather or poor road markings. The financial incentives to automate Truck driving alone are estimated to be 168 billion dollars per year. No, oh, I'm sure. So we're looking at a at a set of incentives that are spurring our richest, most advanced companies to work ever harder on making the human worker less and less relevant.
0: You know, you think about truck drivers; they they work long hours, and it's it's something that you know people without higher education can do and still make a decent salary now. And, you know, the, it seems like automation is going to happen. What, what, so, you know, if left unaddressed and with the automation of, of truck drivers, it, it's, that could have a real big effect on our economy. I don't know how many truck drivers there are, but what, what might be some actual That's solutions?
3: Right. Our government's been asleep at the switch for decades while this has been going on. Uh, the talking points for politicians revolve around education and retraining. But if you look at the data, the efficacy rates of retraining programs in, for example, Michigan, were measured to be between 0 and 37% effective. And it turns out that 40% of displaced manufacturing workers in Michigan left the workforce and went on disability. Uh, It's one of the reasons why the suicide rate among middle-aged Americans has surged to record levels, and our life expectancy is declining as a result. Education and retraining are not real solutions. They're more fantasies and political talking points. Uh, And it's not like retraining is going to be made available to all of the affected workers. One out of 10 Americans works in retail, and 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years. Mm. I'm sure your listeners in New Hampshire are
0: seeing
3: stores close all around them. And it's not like there are government retraining officers standing outside every closed or mall trying to retrain people. So this isn't being addressed at any real level at scale. Our politicians are essentially pretending it's not happening and it's yes, not real.
0: Of course. So what what about these individual truck drivers who average age 49 years old? Retraining doesn't seem realistic. What can they do? What can you offer for these individual truck drivers who are being uh, made obsolete?
3: Well, my plan is to offer a freedom dividend for every American citizen of $1,000 per month paid for by a new value-added tax that would fall primarily on the companies that are benefiting most from automation. The Roosevelt Institute projects that this plan would increase the size of the economy by $2.5 trillion by putting money into people's hands and would also create four and a half million new jobs. And I'd like everyone who's listening to this right now, to imagine what they would do with $1,000 a month along with their friends, their family members, their neighbors, their community. You would spend the money on Main Street businesses, on repairs, on education for your children, and this would strengthen the economy and make it so that many businesses locally could thrive even in the face of automation at the high end.
0: Wow. That, that's... Uh Quite radical, although I will tell you, I, I've been uh, at this uh, for a long time, this political, social change stuff for a long time. And I do remember uh, back in the early 70s, there was an organization, uh, again, pretty radical, I suppose, called the National Welfare Rights Organization. It called for a universal basic income back then of $5,000, which I don't know what that would be now, probably around 12000 The organization had... Four goals, adequate income, dignity, justice, and democratic participation. They were active from 1966 to 75. At its peak in 69, National Welfare Rights Organization membership was estimated at 25,000 members, mostly African-American women. Its founder, George Wiley, left the National Welfare Rights Organization in 72 to form the Movement for Economic Justice, and he died very mysteriously in what was called a boating accident in August of 1973, just as the movement was picking up steam. Of course, at the time, there was nearly universal opposition to the idea of more money for lazy welfare mothers. And here you are with an updated version. Instead of 5000 you talk about $12,000. Uh, if, if everyone got $12,000 a year, $1,000 a month, Would that not be an incentives destroyer?
3: Well, there's so much to what you just said. We have lots of time. A universal basic income at this level was mainstream political wisdom in the 60s and 70s. It passed the House of Representatives under Richard Nixon, installed in the Senate because the Democrats wanted a higher income level. A thousand economists signed a letter saying a basic income would be great for the economy and society. just gotten away from that because we've lost our faith in people over the last number of decades. We've now put our faith in institutions and hoping that wealth and opportunity will trickle down, which we now know completely does not work. Only 6% of this latest tax cut actually made it to workers. The majority flowed straight to shareholders. $12,000 a year. Studies have shown that people's work hours and work ethic stays the same except for two groups. Teenagers stay in school and graduate from high school to higher levels. That's and good young point. mothers spend more time with their children. Other than that, people either work the same levels or, in some cases, even work harder because they're starting new businesses. $12,000 a year is not enough to prosper. Um, people who are listening to this know that. Like, no one listening to this is going to quit their job for $12,000 a year. Yeah, for sure. If anything, it's just going to allow you to save, plan for the future, get ahead and maybe even go back to school or start a new business.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, kind of a, just a, a small leg up. And I remember back, again, showing my history here, in 1976 when I supported a candidate for president, a uh, senator from Oklahoma, Fred Harris, who you may have noticed did not become president. Anyway, he, he said if you draw a map of high unemployment, you know, where people are desperate, and you draw a map of high crime, You draw on the same map. And I've just, you know, people are desperate. And and Lyndon Johnson there in the beginning of the show was uh, saying uh, the dignity for everyone. Uh, I wonder if you could, uh, you know, speak to those things about uh, the issue of of desperation and crime. Uh, Go ahead.
3: It's completely the case that a lack of jobs and economic opportunity drives crime and many, many other social ills. We are the richest, most advanced society in human history. Our economy is $19 trillion in size and has grown by $4 trillion in the last 10 years. We can easily afford a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month to all of our citizens. And as you suggest, there are so many social benefits to the freedom dividend where mental health improves, domestic violence goes down, criminality goes down, hospital visits go down, children's personalities even improve where they become more conscientious and agreeable, in part because they're growing up in an environment that's less stressed out. 57% of Americans right now cannot pay a $500 unexpected bill. We're operating in a mode of pervasive economic insecurity and scarcity, and it's driving many, many social ills for millions of families around the country. And there's no reason why we can't fix it. We live in a democracy we can easily afford a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month. I,
0: I can't help but think so. I mean, if you look at the parts of the economy uh, that are, phew, it seems to me, just burning money faster than you can feed it into the, to the furnace, you know, like uh, military contractors that make stuff that doesn't do anything except make them hundreds of billions of dollars. Just so many ways money is being wasted. And there's I mean, so many things to talk about there. There's, frankly, the opioid crisis. You know, I have wondered, uh, you know, I've been in the hospital before and they've administered morphine to me when I'm in great pain, and I'm guessing that's a similar feeling to heroin or, or opioids. And it's like, why would somebody want to take this stuff? How, how might this affect the opioid crisis that we're experiencing now, the UBI?
3: Well, the opioid crisis, and I know that's, Afflicting many people in New Hampshire, the opioid crisis is a disease of capitalism. We caused it by allowing a private company, Purdue Pharma, to prescribe opiates to to hundreds of thousands of Americans as a risk-free wonder drug. And then that has morphed into an opiate epidemic and a heroin epidemic. And that company profited to the tunes of billions, even tens of billions of dollars. And now we, the public, are trying to find the resources to to combat this plague. As president, my plan would be to internalize the cost for the drug companies Mm. that have benefited financially from opioid prescriptions over the last number of years, claw back that money and pay for treatment for people in New Hampshire and people around the country. It is immoral that we have allowed this to happen and that companies continue to, to profit on the backs of American lives and American families. Again, seven Americans die of opiate overdoses every hour, and it's unconscionable that we've let this happen in our country.
0: And I would think, you know, it's it's desperation. Uh, you know, I, I would think people, you know, who were have a sense of dignity, have a sense of worth, are not going to want to feel completely numb. You know, it's people feeling in despair and hopeless. And if they have that, you know, they know they can survive at the just basic level, chances are <laughs> they're not going to turn to that stuff. At least that, that's what I would think. W- what about, I mean, the, the idea of a universal basic income, let's look at a little bit of the history of that. I mean, is it not political poison? I mean, I can just imagine most people saying, what? Everybody gets $12,000 a year and they don't have to do anything for that? Whoa, I would think there'd be tremendous, you know, knee-jerk reaction to that. You know, a universal basic income sounds kind of utopian, but you suggest a form of Universal basic income almost became law as you mentioned a little bit earlier in 1970 and 71. how close did it get to passing and what about uh, somebody who used to be known as a real conservative President Nixon?
3: That's exactly right. There's actually a state right now that has a basic income of one to two thousand dollars per year and it's Alaska the deep red state. It's been in effect for 36 years. There's a very deep heritage on both sides of the aisle around basic income because it empowers individuals, it's good for the economy, it puts resources into the hands of the people that need it most, and it tries to alleviate government bureaucracy where instead of having money, because we all feel like if money goes into the government, we're never going to see it again. Uh, We are the owners of this society, just like a company pays a dividend to its shareholders, this is our dividend. And again, we're very, very fortunate and privileged where we can easily afford a dividend at this size. In my book, The War on Normal People, which is what we're experiencing right now, I go through the numbers where it's eminently affordable. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you we can't afford this because we can easily afford it. And like you said earlier in this interview, we're squandering money on a lot of other things. Yeah. We printed $4 trillion for the banks <laughs> in the bailout. So we can easily, and there was no inflation, so we can easily afford a basic income at this level, which would cost about $1.5 trillion uh, that would go directly to the American people every year.
0: And that's so interesting. I mean, that's a basic Republican conservative line. This is your money. You get to keep this money. Uh, I mean, I happen to believe in the common good and they're paying for things like roads and bridges and things like that and you know, helping people afford education does build real national security. But but you're saying uh, it goes back to the individuals. And you mentioned I, I think it's worth repeating four trillion dollars was printed to pay for the bank bailout. And and to me, a billion, which is a thousand million, I think is a lot of money. And a trillion is what a thousand billion? Is that is that? Could that be a thousand billion? That's I can't even, <laughs> can I you know think about. Uh, it.
3: it it is. It's incredible what we've allowed to happen in this country, <laughs> where this is going to be an evergreen stimulus of humanity. Think people first, making our economy serve us instead of us all being servants to the marketplace and the capital markets. The slogan of my campaign is humanity first, and that's the kind of economy we need to build. Because if we continue to prioritize capital and capital efficiency, it will ruin us due to advancing technologies that will make it so that fewer and fewer people are going to be able to compete with artificial intelligence, software, machines, robots. You can see, even now, AI is developing to a point where it's going to replace Tens of th- hundreds of thousands of American workers, uh, McKinsey and Bain, the top two consulting firms, right. MIT, all agree we're looking at automation of between 25 to 30 percent of American jobs in the next 12 years, and that that's I mean that's a staggering level. Even if they're off by a little bit, it's not going to matter.
0: Uh, I, I can understand you know when I go to buy groceries, uh, the checkout person okay I can see how that's going to be, uh, you know, replaceable by uh, robotics or artificial intelligence, retail, uh, clerical. But doctors, lawyers, journalists, therapists, uh, those are safe from automation, aren't they?
3: Well, I was a lawyer briefly, and I can tell you that a lot of lawyering is what's called routine cognitive work. Anything that's rules-based is actually very subject to automation. So that includes many educated workers, like accountants, lawyers, radiologists. People that are following protocols and rules are actually very, very subject to automation. It's the non-routine work that's the most difficult to automate. So that's things like like counselors, teachers, a lot of human-facing roles. Uh, are the least likely to be automated for quite some time.
0: Now, I suppose doctors, you know, there's only so many things that can go wrong with a human body, so I suppose that. But what about, I mean, journalists don't make a lot of money, but you're suggesting that even journalists might be able to be uh, automated. Tell tell us about that, please.
3: Well, well, certainly, uh, journalism should be a public good, and the market will not support journalism in many many communities around the country because it used to be classified ads now there's no money in it. Right. So as president you can see on my website I've got a three-point plan to help strengthen journalism because it should be considered a valuable public good. And I'm not saying this just because uh, I'm talking to a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand. But we need good information to function as an effective democracy and pretending that the market is going to supply the resources is increasingly nonsensical over time. So this is an area where uh, the public sector, philanthropy, uh, and other non-private actors should get in and strengthen journalism.
0: Uh, I'd like to see it. And it amazes me how the the right wing who dares to call themselves conservatives want to do away with journalism, and they just want to have uh, you know an echo chamber, Fox News. But I digress a little bit there. Uh, But the the Republican Party, somehow, it amazes me, still looks to the free market to solve all our problems. You write that only one entity, the federal government, can realistically reformat society in ways that will prevent large numbers of American workers from becoming jobless. While many of us would agree with that analysis, it's rather difficult to imagine a U.S. federal government actually eager and able to do this. Your comments.
3: Yeah, it's it's completely the case that our economy is transforming for good and that relying upon the free market to get everything right is, is going to be increasingly destructive over time. Now, I, I've been an entrepreneur for decades, Uh, But as an entrepreneur, I can tell you that corporations and business people follow incentives. And in this instance, we need an invigorated government to step up and recognize that we are facing some of the greatest challenges we've ever faced in terms of our transforming economy that's going to deprioritize individual workers more and more. And that's why I'm running for president. I believe we have to evolve to the next stage of capitalism, which I call human-centered capitalism or human capitalism. Yeah. But it's going to require us coming together and saying, look, we know what we value. We know that humanity is more important than money. We don't believe that the market is going to get everything magically right no. anymore. Uh-huh. That we need an invigorated, active government that will distribute the gains of automation to tens of millions of Americans that we can improve our lives and take care of our families and make, uh, make this transition and then reshape the incentives for corporate actors to include human well-being. Right now, GDP drives everything we do and GDP is a made-up measurement that we came up with during the Great Depression just to see how badly things were going and how we could improve. Today, we need new measurements around childhood success and education mental health and freedom from addiction, environmental quality, proportion of elderly and quality care. These are the measurements that would actually tell us what, how we're doing. And as president, I will make those the new guideposts to the economy and drive corporate behavior in those directions.
0: Wow, we're talking uh, a real vision here. It's you know not exactly your, your normal uh, political stance, to put it mildly. And uh, is this not... I mean, I definitely want to talk about this whole running for president idea. It's wide open right now, that's for sure. Um, is this not socialism? It, it sounds kind of like it. I mean, I don't really know. You know, lots of things have gone under the title of socialism, Every you know, that aren't <laughs> socialism. And I think kids these days don't necessarily react as my generation and older people did. When they hear the word socialism, they stop thinking. But is this, is this a form of socialism?
3: Well, socialism is defined as nationalizing the means of production. So That would be the government taking over GE or Google or the like.
0: Uh This is
3: not socialism. Uh This is so pro-capitalist that the Roosevelt Institute projects that a freedom dividend or a basic income of $1,000 a month would create 4.5 million new jobs because having money in our pockets would actually strengthen the consumer economy. So this is not socialism. Uh, socialism, like you said, it just gets thrown around uh, willy-nilly to things that <laughs> that do not actually resemble socialism in practice. Uh, but I understand why people are sympathetic because capitalism is failing us as Americans and human beings. It's not. Uh, it's not related. GDP is no longer related to the well-being of the average citizen. Because the economy, GDP is going to continue to grow, but uh, we're, we're not going to feel that growth more and more.
0: Interesting. Yeah, so we, we, the people, are just going to be at effect of it, and that makes people rather upset. I think that's one of the things that uh, happened in the 2016 election. People felt like, hey, this government is not working for us. This system is not working for us. Let's try something really different. Well. Certainly the Democratic nominee was not that, <laughs> and Trump at least talked about it. It was, uh, shall we say, not real, <laughs> not honest, but people wanted something different. And I think you're right uh, uh, that uh, there people are getting upset that, hey, I'm being left out of this stuff. I don't matter. And the idea, I mean, the name of the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And if people don't feel like we have any chance of any realistic input uh, that that's certainly a, a very dangerous situation and and as as you described we're heading toward either Star Trek or Mad Max that's very interesting please explain what you mean on that
3: well technology is accelerating to a point where more and more can be done with fewer and fewer people so with Star Trek Those gains get distributed broadly, the way I'm suggesting with the Freedom Dividend, where we all experience some of that prosperity. Mad Max, which is where we're heading right now, truthfully, is where a handful of people have a lot of resources and everyone else is scrambling to survive. And that's very much the direction we're heading right now by the numbers, where 57% of Americans right now cannot afford a $500 bill Donald Trump is our president today because we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, driving many people in those communities towards scarcity. Uh So we have to make up our mind pretty quickly which direction we want to go, whether we want to share in the bounty of these incredible technological advances and improve the way of life for tens of millions of Americans, or accept that those benefits are going to be hoarded by a small handful of companies and individuals, while the rest of us uh, suffer and become increasingly destitute and deprived. So that's what I meant by the point between Star Trek and Mad Max. It's very stark, because these forces are real and just getting stronger. My friends in Silicon Valley are just now getting more and more confident about the capacity of artificial intelligence to replace more and more human workers.
0: Yeah, just going to be left out. And I have heard, being somewhat involved in politics, I've heard many, many, many explanations for what happened in 2016. But your description of all those job losses in those key states, I had never heard that before. That's really interesting that in those absolutely key states that the Democrats took for granted, tremendous job loss in that area because of automation. Fascinating.
3: political figures are not being honest about it at all. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the numbers, you can see very clearly that 95 million Americans are out of the workforce. The underemployment rate for recent college graduates is now 44%, despite all the record debt load that our young people have had to take out. We're up to $1.3 trillion in educational debt, which is a massive burden on our young people starting families and businesses. I mean... Like, this is our reality, and one of my, one of the points that, that this campaign is built on is that none of this is science fiction. It's all real. Yeah. None of this is speculative. We're in the middle of it. Yeah. We're dealing with it in the worst way possible, which is by pretending it's not happening. I'm running for president on a platform of pushing us and accelerating both society and government forward to rise to the challenges of 2020. And anyone listening to this, if you want to make, Universal Basic Income, a reality. Join us at yang2020.com or Google my name, Andrew Yang. We still live in a true democracy and we can make this real, but we have to wake up to the reality around us. 70% of Americans now agree that technology is going to eliminate many more jobs than it creates over the next 10 years. Right. And they're 100% right. Yeah,
0: There's no question that it is, in fact, happening. Uh, this idea of of, of running for president, you know, I, this show again is coming from New Hampshire first in the nation primary. And generally we have a oh, hundred or so candidates on, on each side of the ticket running. You know, it's always just a few that are the big allegedly serious ones. I mean, the third party, forget about it. It doesn't even exist. I, 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 you're running as a Democrat and t- tell us about that. I mean, I don't see anybody in the lead right now. I mean, certainly the most popular politician in America is still Bernie Sanders. He may still run. I, I really don't know. Uh, I think uh, the the other faction, I don't even want to say her name because she helped give us Trump, uh, I think is pretty much moribund, hopefully. Are, are you running as a Democrat? And tell us about this, this idea of, of running for president. I mean, you know, there are people who... You know, we <laughs> there was actually a guy here. Oh, my goodness, I can't even remember his name now. Uh, yes, Vermin Supreme. He ran for president. That was the name he used, Vermin Supreme. You're not a nut. I mean, you're not one of these wackos who runs for president. Tell us about how you came to this decision and, and just what your vision is for this next uh, uh, nearly a couple of years for running for the presidential nomination, Mr. Uh, Yang. I don't know if it's Mr. or Dr.,
3: Yes. I, I am running for president as a Democrat and I'm running because we are going through the greatest technological and economic shift in human history and no one is truly paying attention to it or suggesting real solutions. Now I'm I'm I really admire Bernie Sanders because he got many of the problems right. But I, I believe that Technology is the main driver behind this, and that I have a distinct perspective on how to harness technology or collective benefit, but also be realistic about the impact it's going to have on workers in New Hampshire and around the country. And we need big changes very quickly. We only have five years, perhaps, before the truckers start losing their jobs, and we all get to... Is the great trucker riots of 2024 or whatever the year happens to be. That's why I'm running for president because this stuff is getting away from us very, very quickly. It's going to speed up. And my goal as president is to speed up our government and our society to truly address the challenges of 2020. Uh, I've met with other politicians, and many of them are very, very good people, but, but too few of them understand technology and what we need to do as a society to get through this period.
0: Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Andrew Young, entrepreneur, I mean, Andrew Yang, entrepreneur and, uh, Running for president, author of a new book, The War on Normal People, uh, the truth about America's disappearing jobs and why universal basic income is our future. It seems to me, running for president, people don't want to hear the truth. That's too scary. They just, you know, there's fear and reassurance. Those seem to be the driving uh, factors. Do Do you think people are ready to hear this kind of you know, it's it's challenging. It's scary. Are people ready to hear this, do you think?
3: Well, I mean, it, it's the truth. People tend to recognize the truth when they hear it. I'm coming to New Hampshire April, uh, at the end of this month, uh, April 25th. And so if people want to hear the truth in person. That would be a lot of fun. It's an unpleasant truth. I'm not happy with the fact that our government has been asleep at the switch for so many decades and it's gotten to this point where it's truly society threatening and I wouldn't like I'm not an alarmist type like I'm a practical pragmatic entrepreneur but we have to start facing facts I mean this is our reality and uh, we're Americans, we're patriots, we're adults we have to rise to this challenge together Uh, I'm a parent. I have two young children. And I'm running for president in in large part because I'm concerned about the future of this country and what it holds for them.
0: Well, I'm certainly concerned myself. My daughters are a bit older than that, but I'm very, very concerned for them. Hopefully there'll be no nuclear war between now and then. And frankly, I'm not as worried now as I was just a few weeks ago. Um, You know, there is the whole idea of progress. I was brought up Believing uh, that progress, that's thats what happened in history. Things just got better over time. Of course, that's not the case. <laughs> it's just, it's simply not. And there's that old saying, well, you can't stop progress. That, you know, machines happen. Automation is happening. And there is the historic example of the Luddites. I'm sure you've heard of that in the early 1800s. Uh, bands of English workers destroyed machinery, especially in cotton and woolen mills, that they believed were threatening their jobs. Uh, you, you're not uh, fighting against the automation and the machines, correct? You're sort of welcoming it, but we it's like how it's, i I'm guessing here, providing sort of a new context in which to hold this new stuff. Is that right?
3: Well, it, it's it's almost impossible to forestall automation entirely. Even if you were to try and pass laws saying you need a human driver in every truck, only human doctors are allowed to look at radiology films. The fact is, 40% of malls are going to close anyway. Uh, like you, they're, they're, and that's not a, an artificial intelligence story. That's just $40 billion of e-commerce going to Amazon. Uh, every year and so the goal should not be to try and forestall automation the goal should be to distribute its gains broadly to the American people in a way that will allow us to improve our lives, raise our children, make good choices and start uh, getting our heads up to plan for the future because too many Americans right now are just scrambling to pay our bills week to week and month to month as economic insecurity spreads. And that's what we have to put a stop to as a, as a people. And as president, that's going to be my goal. But the great thing about universal basic income is that it strengthens the economy, but it really strengthens American families and our day-to-day lives. Yeah. It's an evergreen stimulus of humanity and people. And that's really what we need. We just need to recognize that we have that power and ability to make that a reality. We still live in a democracy, and there's no reason we can't vote that into effect.
0: We can, and people, you know, the, the powers that be have tried really hard and been pretty successful in convincing most of America, ah, there's nothing we can do. We're powerless. Most people, I think fewer and fewer people believe that because I think the Trump administration has fired up a lot of people and people are saying, hey, <laughs> we're not just consumers here. We are, cons- are citizens, and we can do something about that. And, uh uh you write that uh, something called human capitalism i've heard the phrase social capital before but what is what is human capitalism that's an intriguing uh, i don't understand what it means thought
3: sorry bert you cut out for for a minute there
0: uh, i was talking just asking about what human capitalism is what you mean by that phrase
3: oh sure what i mean by that is that we need to have our capitalist system geared towards improving Human lives and human well being. So imagine the State of the Union, where instead of a bizarre theater performance with no real information, you have a series of measurements as to how our society is doing, saying, hey, seven Americans die of opiates every hour. That's completely unconscionable. So we're going to bring that down by 50% over the next three years, and here's how we're going to do it. That's human capitalism,
1: uh-huh. where
3: you have measuring sticks up that are not GDP or profit growth, or stock market prices. 50% of Americans own zero stock anyway, and only 8% own 80% of the stock market. It's a terrible measurement. Oh, terrible. So human capitalism is having intelligent measurements that actually correspond to our way of life, Ah. and then gear our economy and our government towards improving those measurements.
0: Interesting. It'd be interesting to see what those measurements would be, you know, how you measure uh, success. I mean, one clear measure of our failure is this drastic rise in incarceration. We become an incarceration nation. And people in jails pff, are treated like dirt, basically. it's the It seems to be the sort of antithesis of, of human value, of valuing every person. People are told again and again and again, you are no good. Not that you did wrong, but that you are no good. How... How, you know, and this incarceration nation, how might your solution deal with that serious problem that's so often just swept under the rug?
3: Yeah, and so there's a a saying in business that you make what you measure. So if you are looking at incarceration as the issue in recidivism, then you can try and put resources to work to successfully reintegrate people into society, to help people find opportunities. I mean, one of the great things about basic income is going to be that it's going to save us money because things get really costly for us as a society when people and families become dysfunctional and they wind up in our emergency room, incarcerated. Those things are very, very expensive. It's actually a huge money saver, hmm. uh, as, well as, uh, as well as great for individuals and families to help keep people functional. Universal basic income will pay for itself in large measure, by keeping people away from our healthcare system, our criminal justice system, right, our homeless sure. services, uh, our drug rehab services, and on and on.
0: And I think, you know, again, people are worried about, wow, if everybody gets $12,000 a year, where is the incentive to work? Well, I, I can't help but think that after this discussion, it actually enhances a, a desire to work, an incentive to make things better. Uh, that, that we can... Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yes.
3: It, it, it does enhance.
0: Well, be more specific.
3: Uh, to your point about the, this the name of the show, uh, we have to keep democracy vital and strong. And the way to do that is by strengthening the American people. Uh, and that's my goal as president, is to rebuild our economic system in a way that strengthens us. And that puts humanity first again.
0: Hmm. imagine uh, what a what a concept, putting humanity first, we can do it, we really can we, we are not powerless and uh well, yeah, and just again, trying to think of where the money would come from because the predictable reactions are what we said about de incentivizing work. we know that 's not the case. Where will we get the money well what do you say to the people who worry about the cost? I mean I note that. Uh, head of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, has a net worth of $127 billion. I mean, to me, $100 million is a tremendous amount of money. I can't even fathom that. This guy has $127 well,
3: billion. Well, look, I, I know some of the people who are winning uh, in this economy. Okay. And they are still Americans. They are still parents. They are still human beings. Some of them, I'm happy to say, are still patriots, where... They know what's good for the American people and American society is good for them, too. Uh And many of them are willing to take a small hit financially. Life is about more than trying to maximize your bank account. Yes. (laughs) And uh, to your point, the gains are being accrued by a relatively small number of people. And we need those people to step up and say, I understand my place in this country and Sharing the benefits will be good for me, good for my company, good for my shareholders over time. We need to have conversations about enlightened, shared self-interest, and I'm happy to say that there are people that are excited about that uh, in San Francisco and New York. like uh, you know that we're, we're all still, again, parents, human beings, and, and happily patriots.
0: Yes, there are, and there's uh, a lot of people with a fair amount of money who realize this and that... You know, their parents, and uh, y- you can't be an island. You know, you don't want to chain yourself off and have to live in a chained, uh, gated community that if we all benefit, we all benefit. Uh, what about the idea of uh, a floor and a ceiling that maybe uh, maybe that's not necessary? Maybe, you know, it's not necessary to say, well, you can have a lot of money, but let's not be ridiculous, but...
3: Well, one, one of the things that I suggest in my book is that we are heading towards a revolution, either the benign, happy, Mm -hmm. political kind, Mm -hmm. less happy kind. Um, Back to the Star Trek Mad Max, we we need to choose the benign, positive revolution. And uh, that's why I'm running for president, is to make that happen, articulate a vision for where we need to go as a country and as a people, and then help lead us there.
0: And one example in your book, in 1995, a group of researchers began tracking the personalities of 1,420 low-income children in North Carolina. Then something unpredicted happened. Uh, I guess 25% of their families started receiving $4,000 per person. This is way back in 1995. They were Cherokee Indians uh, receiving casino earnings. What did they didn't directly earn? What did the researchers learn about the extra cash, how it impacted the children's personalities over the years? I think maybe that's an interesting case study.
3: Yeah, that that research was so compelling, Bert, because it showed how $1,000 a month can transform children, their family lives, decreasing stress levels, Increasing mental health, decreasing domestic violence—it uh, like that research is so compelling. Uh, if, if there's one thing in my book that I feel like everyone should read, it, <laughs> it's that chapter. And we can make that a reality for every family uh, in New Hampshire and around the country. It's yeah, that research was a goldmine for those researchers, but it's a goldmine for us as a as a society to be able to look at what money can do. And people who, are, who can hear hear my voice right now know it's like, hey, if you had $1,000 a month, you could actually solve a lot of life's little problems and start thinking um, about some of the bigger issues, uh, which is where we want to be.
0: And I would think if people don't have to be desperate to survive, that it might actually unleash a bit more creativity and, and enable people to feel more fully human and more fulfilled in their lives and what the heck isn't that
3: oh completely <laughs> i've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs around the country as a founder of venture for america yes and the, the freedom dividend universal basic income would be the greatest catalyst to entrepreneurship and creativity we have ever seen wow. because entrepreneurs tend not to be uh not to be uh yeah. having their heads down trying to make sure that they pay their bills each month to survive. Right. Um, entrepreneurs often have their heads up. They're thinking about the problems they want to solve, what what they value most, and the kind of business uh, or organization they want to see in the world. And that's what we're going to make possible for more and more Americans. Again, four and a half million new jobs. Uh, but I, I'm an entrepreneur myself. I have yes. many, many entrepreneur friends. And most all the time, um, they've had their head up and they can see a problem that they want to solve and, and bring a solution into the world.
0: And they have enough confidence uh, to, to try something, to take yeah, a little bit of a realistically, risk. realistically,
3: a lot of them have the savings where they can take a risk or two. Yeah. Uh, and that's good, a good thing. We need more Americans in the same position, and we can easily make that happen if we just have the collective will and vision to, to make it a reality.
0: And that's something I think basically valuable about being an American is that you know, we value entrepreneurship, pioneers, people taking risks and pushing it out there and making a yeah, difference. Yeah, that,
3: that spirit is one of the reasons my parents came here. But by the numbers, Americans are starting fewer businesses. They're moving mm. less. Uh, the spirit of enterprise is in real danger yeah. because of some of these macroeconomic forces, including these technological forces. A generation ago, you might have started a main street store. Uh, today, that store doesn't make any sense because no. of Amazon. Right. So the, the spirit of enterprise... The rate of business formation among young Americans has actually gone down by over 50% in the last 15 years. We have a massive problem in our hands, and basic income is one of the big solutions to help solve it.
0: Well, very interesting. Uh, Very interesting discussion here today, quite different. Uh, Andrew Yang, the book is called The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income Is Our Future. And you're running for president, too.
3: Bert, thank you so much for having
0: wait, me. Wait, wait, I, I need to...
3: I hope I've been loud and clear this whole time. Pleasure to, to be here uh, and have this interview with you and have some of your time.
0: What's your website? I need to get that.
3: Oh, my gosh. My website is yang2020.com. You can Google Andrew Yang, and it will come right up. But let's make it a reality. This is still America. We are still a democracy. Yes, we can still make an economy that works for each and every one of us.
0: We can do it. Thank you so much. And, and as you say, we got about five years before this crunch really comes down. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks, Bert. It's been a pleasure.
2: Pushing through the market square so many mothers crying news had just come over we had five years left to sighing news guy wept when he told us earth was really dying cried so much that his face was wet then I knew was not lying. I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies. I saw boys, toys, electric irons, and TVs. My brain hurt like a warehouse. It had no room to spare. I had to cram so many things to get everything in them. So many people,
1: all the short, fat people, all the nobody people
2: And all the somebody people I never thought I'd need so many people girl my age went off her head Hit some tiny children If the black had not pulled her off I think she would have killed them. A soldier with a broken arm fixed the stare to the wheels of a Cadillac. A cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest, and a queer threw up at the sight of that. I think I saw you in an ice cream parlor. Drinking milkshakes, cold and long Smiling and waving and looking so fine Don't think you knew you were in my song It was cold and it rained So I felt
1: like an actor And I thought of ma. And I wanted to get back there To the face your race The way that you walk I kiss you, you're beautiful I want you to walk, we've got five.